Lord, I thank you that I'm uh, amongst friends and I get amongst brothers and sisters and we need our souls fed from your word. So give us an undivided attention to what your word here is saying to us today, that we may meet you in the power of the Spirit and walk in humble obedience and joy. Lord, we have wandering minds and are prone to distractions. Lord, keep us from those we ask. Uh, help us together to honour and worship as we hear and feed on your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So that is the thing, isn't it? Every time we open the Bible, we're at risk. Uh, we're at risk because it gets in our face. That's what God's word does. It gets in our face uh, and asks us questions and immediately putting something straight up in front of us. And I suppose, I suppose if you were to ask, well, ask the question, what is it that God's word is putting right front and centre in our faces today? It would be this question: How do you deal? How do you deal with the reality of the spread of Christianity? being a global force. Because it has to be explained by one means or another. It's something that's puzzled the historians for absolutely years. Why is it and how is it that Christianity spread so fast in the early years? You think about it, the group that Jesus left behind was relatively small and utterly lacking in influence. They weren't people with a big name, they weren't they won the X Factor, they hadn't got any celebrity sort of kudos or anything like that, they were unschooled, uh, rather insignificant people. They were fishermen and carpenters. And Christianity didn't advance through conquest. It advanced with a message just simply going forward. For 400 years, no one even picked up a sword, really, in defence of it. Uh, its followers, when they decided to trust in Jesus, didn't get rich. Most of them lost stuff and made, it made them more poor. I mean, how on earth do you develop a movement when it makes you more poor? But it did. It produced communities unlike anything the world had seen. They were peaceable. There were lots of persecuted religious groups around at the time. But here was a pers persecuted religious group who refused to fight back and they would pray for the forgiveness of their captors and joyfully face what they were going to face as a result of the cruelty of people. They welcomed the outsiders. They were the first multiracial community on the planet. And they taught that all people were equal in value before the eyes of the living God. So whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, rich, poor, old, young, black, white, you could be uh, an experiencer of the love of God in your life. And they were generous. They made headlines by exposing and showing up the authorities of the day in the 1st, 2nd and 3rd century because of their generosity to their enemies. They looked after Roman citizens better than the Romans did, even though the Roman citizens were very happy to see them come to a sticky end. <coughs> there was one clever dude in a prominent university in the States and he said this, he was a, a, an academic and a historian. The more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary history of Christianity, the more one, you can spot it in academic, he says one, the more one, rather more I, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. It is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity there must have occurred a vast release of energy virtually unequalled in history. Nothing else could explain the surge of the early Christian movement. What caused this release of energy? That lies outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. 
goes on and says this. But before I'm a historian, I'm a human being. How can I close my eyes to the obvious explanation that something supernatural happened? God in his face. How do you deal with the spread of Christianity? We're going to go right back to the birthday of the church. The original birthday of the church as we look in chapter 2 here in Acts. I've got four titles for us here. Uh, they all start with an M, so it should be quite easy for us to remember. There's uh, the miracle of Pentecost, the meaning of Pentecost, the message of Pentecost, and the movement of Pentecost. Okay? Miracle, meaning, message, movement. Okay? Do you reckon we can get that? We'll see. Okay, let's start with number one. The, mi- the miracle of Pentecost. So, let's start to read again at verse 1 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place... Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Because each one heard them speak in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that we each, hear, each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jew and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. A miracle. But we need to see the basis of the miracle. So flip back, keep your finger in Acts chapter 2 and flip back to the end of John's, uh, sorry, Luke's gospel. We looked at this last week and we need to keep going back to it to see the history. Let's see the history. Let's see the expectation. Luke chapter 24, flick over and you'll find it starting in verse 45. This is the Lord Jesus to those disciples who had not really believed everything that had been said in the law and the prophets and the Psalms about him. Verse 45, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer, check. Rise from the dead on the third day, check. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So the disciples were a gang of waiters. They were waiting because Jesus had said something has to happen for the next stage in his story to develop. Flip back over to Acts chapter 1, and we saw it last week, starting to read at verse uh, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria (coughs) to the ends of the earth. I bet they hadn't got a clue what it was they were waiting for. And suddenly the audiovisuals begin. When that, uh, it's the day of Pentecost, Jerusalem is swollen. There's people come from all kinds of different nations to celebrate 50 days after Passover. Pentecost was like the, it was like the first fruits. It was like the beginnings of the harvest where they gathered to say, 
look what the, the Lord has given us up to this stage. Imagine how much more he's going to give us from this great harvest. And little did they realise what was a celebration of an earthly provision was telling a story as to what was about to happen as a global harvest was about to begin. Verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of the violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. The kind of movements of, the, of wind and of fire that was typical all in the Old Testament, whenever God was on the move and he was demonstrating his holy, mighty arm to do something, it's all right there. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled. Now remember, these are a bunch of hillbillies, okay? Uh, Galilean accents, as they talk about in just a minute. Aren't these men Galileans? They, they have spoken a little bit like they came from, I don't know, Newcastle or uh, Glasgow with a really strong regional accent. Obviously everybody should speak Scouts, but that's not what they do, okay? So they were like, listen, and it's as if you've got some sort of I can't do a Glaswegian accent. Uh, gosh, can you do a Glaswegian accent? Basically, <laughs> so imagine you're like your thick sort of council estate, council scheme, Glaswegian. <laughs> suddenly speaking in flawless Mandarin. Okay? Imagine, imagine, let's have a look. Imagine Alex with his Barbados twang, suddenly speaking the Queen's English, don't you know? <laughs> and everybody's going, oh God, that don't happen. How is it, how is it we can hear them? How do we make sense of this? People of the world hearing the gospel in their own language, declaring the wonders of God. It's a miracle that is pointing in a direction of travel. It's saying this is where this Jesus thing is going. It is reversing what happened in Genesis chapter 11 when the, the Lord, because of the evil of the people, gathered together, he confused their speech with different languages to limit the amount of damage and evil they could do. Now he's saying the Spirit of God has descended and he is doing an inner work to reverse the turmoil and I'm going to build a people from every nation, tribe, tongue and language who can speak forth my wonders and live with conversations of praise about me? So, the wonders of God. So what does this mean for us? Well, listen, as far as God is concerned, who are the people who are going to change the world? I was thinking about this. We get all kinds of notable people who have beat up over the top in terms of their level of influence. So we talk about four guys from Liverpool who turned the world upside down. Who we talk about? The Beatles. And we love the Beatles music. But according to this, that's not what's going to transform the world. Political movements, they try to transform the world. They ain't going to do it. I dare say our danger in church is that sometimes we think we can change the world by criticism of it or by conforming to it. That ain't going to happen either. The only thing that changes the world is combustion in the heart of men and women who are turned back to the God who they were made for to know and to love. 
Here we see the Spirit of God come in power. He ignites the people like breath in a body. Here is the breath, that spiritual life. This is all of God into ordinary people who are speaking forth the wonders of the true and living God. And I wonder whether this is broadening your horizon. Because if you watch the news, it seems like there's all kinds of important things that we've really got to be worried about in the world. And I'm not saying they're unimportant, but they're made to sound like they're the most important because they seem like the most pressing. So whether it's the migrant crisis or the price of oil or animal welfare or dealing with child poverty at some particular point, sooner or later, a political lobbyist or a media person who wants to make a name for themselves try and bring this big issue and say, we've got to deal with this. Here we see what God is dealing with. The biggest issue, as far as heaven is concerned, is that there will be a global community of people speaking forth the wonders of God. That's why he performs this miracle. It is the direction of travel. So first up, we see the miracle that ends there at verse 11. And then what we've got is the meaning. What does this all mean? And I, I, I love the honesty here. This sounds like a conversation that could have happened just out there on Central Avenue or something like that. Let's have a look at verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? We are people who are always trying to make sense when spiritual reality breaks into our life. When being more than just the physical actually impacts upon us, people are trying to make sense of that. Verse 13, some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Do you know like that? Trying to find a natural explanation for a supernatural reality. Maybe you've got friends at work or in your home who are trying to do that. There's little ways in which the Lord just knocks into their life or they see or experience something that reminds them that they are not the centre of the universe and there is a God up above. And they'll try to come up with an interpretation or a making sense and a meaning that means they can avoid who Jesus is. But thankfully on hand, what we have here, to explain this phenomenon, to make sense with some meaning, is the Apostle Peter. Then the Apostle stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. So spiritual truth is something that we have to have taught to us. It's something that we have to have explained to us, to have opened up. It's not something that we can click onto. We're not the conduit of understanding ourselves. It comes to us through the appointed apostles. Here we go. Keep going. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He invites them to weigh up what they've seen and see it as evidence of something that had been promised in the past. A day when the Lord would break in in such a way as to deal with all that is wicked and evil, 
and offer salvation to all who would come. I say all there. Notice it's not all as in everybody, but it's on all types. Do you notice that? Here is a salvation and a coming and a grace that is for your sons, your daughters, your old, your young. And it means that people will have a personal connection to the true and living God. That's what Joel had promised. God's power coming in to individual lives in a way that it had never done before. And it would be at a time when great wonders are done, and I think that's what verses 19 through to 21 are supposed to tell us. It's that, that's summed up in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Cosmic upheaval that he brought when he came. So here's the Apostle Peter and say, remember that thing that Joel talked about? It's here, now, this is it. This is it, the beginning of a new age of salvation, as we wait for that day when there is a reckoning before God. So what does this mean to us? How do we make sense of it? I think what, first of all, we're being told is we've been given an example here that we should expect to have to reinterpret and put whopping great big labels on spiritual reality when it's there. Not least of all, the ongoing story of what the Lord is doing through his Saviour, Jesus Christ. So you'll have plenty of conversations with your friends who are clueless about spiritual things, but they've met, they've, they've, their lives are brushed with spiritual truth, whether it is in the normal day-to-day -day stuff, or whether it is from a hymn that they've heard, or a church attendance that they have, or the death of a loved one. They've been brushed with spiritual, or, or brushed near to spiritual realities that have come near, and they've come up with all kinds of ideas, and may have missed it. Our job is to make sense of it by talking about Jesus. And the other thing we're supposed to see from this meaning here is he is the one who has come for all people. He is the global saint. He's the one who has been attested by these great and marvellous signs and wonders. And every single person on planet Earth needs this one true saint. Listen, I need to keep on moving. There's so much time I'd like to spend on this, but I've got to keep moving. We've seen his miracle, <laughs> the miracle of Pentecost. We've seen the meaning of Pentecost. Now the message gets going. So here, here it is. Okay, everybody's a little, still a little bit okay. They've just heard there is a name by which we can be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus. They've heard that this is the day of salvation. Okay, so what name? Where do I go? Answer: Jesus. Please note this. This is Pentecost. Okay, this is Pentecost. So we traditionally remember Pentecost as the time when there's the coming of the Spirit. Where the Spirit, where he comes and indwells and empowers and moves amongst his people. But what's the content of the message on the day of Pentecost? What does the Spirit empower? A message about Jesus. Now I have to admit, I love my Pentecostal brothers and sisters in Pentecostal churches. I have to admit that from time to time I sometimes get a little bit unnerved by the exuberance, the excitement and some of the things that get said. But this is how you spot a truly Pentecostal church. A truly Pentecostal church is one that talks about Jesus. You can do all of the kinds of things that are exuberant, and if you don't talk about Jesus, it's not Pentecostal. And it can be really quite sort of seemingly lackadaisical and formulaic and, <coughs> uh, and uh, academic, but if it talks about Jesus, it's a Pentecostal church. Okay? Let's see what Peter says about Jesus. Look here, he talks about him. He says three things. 
Well, not so much about Jesus, but about what God did through his son, the Lord Jesus. Look, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him as you know yourself. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Three things that God has done. You see this? Number one, he has accredited Jesus Christ to the world by miracles, signs and wonders. God has done this. It has been done. Everything that needs to be done for Jesus to be accredited has been done. We're not lacking evidence. Don't dare say there's not enough evidence. Because God has done this. Second of all, God has sacrificed him. He has gone to suffer for the sins of mankind. God has done this. Father, Son and Holy Spirit hatched the plan and turned to the past. And it has been done. And what did God do last of all? Verse 23? Is it 24? But God raised him. Now, you've got to have a lot of guts to be Peter to stand up and do this here. Because this is 50 days after Passover when all <coughs> Jerusalem was set alight by that whole Jesus event. It's only 50 days. Imagine if it hadn't happened and Peter stands up in front of that massive crowd only 50 days afterwards and the resurrection had been a hoax and he's standing in front of that massive crowd and goes, but God raised him from the dead. And everybody goes, we were there. No, he didn't. But they don't say that, do they? Because everybody in Jerusalem knows what has happened. Because John got the body and brought him out. Everybody knows what's happened. They connect to it when they understand what the meaning is for them. Wow. So why, <clears throat> why does Peter quote this psalm, Psalm 16? David saw and said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here today. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him, on, what God had promised him on oath, that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. <coughs> Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God had, has raised this Jesus to life, <coughs> and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Two things that David, uh, the, the apostles trying to prove that David anticipated. Number one, he is the Christ. King David, the Messiah a thousand years ago, saw as a prophet the day when there would be one greater than him who wouldn't die like he did. So the logic of the apostle goes like this. Uh, listen, let's go on a bus tour around Jerusalem. 
Let's see whether we can find David's tomb. Oh yeah, there it is, you can find it. He died, he's not the great Messiah. Oh, but Jesus, that's gone across to a tour looking for his tomb. Ah, you'll find it, but it's empty, because he's risen from the grave. That means he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He's the one you've been waiting for, and we are witnesses. But not only is he the Christ, David also foresaw that this one would reign as Lord on high. He has ascended, exalted to the right hand. He has received from the Father, verse 33, uh, the, the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see and hear now. So this is a demonstration of the Lordship of Jesus. And he sums it up with that <coughs> sentence in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. We need to get the identity of Jesus straight. So long ago, there was a, an interview on telly uh, with Bono, you know, the lead singer of the, the big super group U2. Um, my guess is you probably listened up when I started saying that, but I, I don't know. Um, the, the, the person who was interviewing was just interested in his spiritual views. His, uh, the subject of Jesus came up. And it was fascinating what Bono said. I'll quote it. Here we go. The secular, I can't do it with the Irish accent. The secular response to Christ, the Christ story, always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say about, uh, along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet, I'm saying I am God in the flesh. And people say, no, no, please just be a prophet. A uh, prophet we can take, you're a bit eccentric, but we've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey, we can handle that, but uh, but not God, no, not the Messiah, because you're, because, well, we're going to have to crucify you if you say that. And he goes, no, no, I actually am the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and saying, oh my God, He's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is either Christ, <coughs> who he said, as he said he was, God incarnate, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. And I mean we're talking a nutcase on the level of Charles Manson, and I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe would have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's a little <coughs> far-fetched. That's a pretty good sermon for Bono, isn't it? Why didn't he put that to music and make it a number one hit? Come on, Bono, you've got that in you, fella. Get busy with your bass. Come on. Anyway, I thought that was awesome, but he's got the points. And here, the penny was dropping. A crowd of thousands. Notice those three words that Peter dropped in to mean that they couldn't just listen to it as a historical fact. It meant they were engaged in the story. Pick that up in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, what? Whom you crucified. Both the Lord and Christ. This was part of their story. Now can I just tell you, that's our job.
Families in our homes hear and speak. Our job is simply to lovingly, graciously, without compromise, present people, confront people who Jesus is. What he did, what God has done in him. Have you noticed it? People assume, you know, say, so what's God done? God didn't. As far as our community here is concerned, God has done nothing. We've just got to tell them that actually that's not true. Let me show you, let me tell you what he did. And then I'll help you make sense of what that means for you. You see, if we were doing outreach 40, 50 years ago, we wouldn't have to do that. Because from Sunday schools and kids going to church, RE lessons and assemblies in school, people were told what God did. If you're lucky out there and you talk to people, they're going to tell you a little bit about a baby in a crib. But they haven't got a clue. So don't get angry with people because they don't know what Jesus, uh, what God did in Jesus Christ. It's our job to say this has happened. I was thinking about this. We need to get a big, big sort of like... Um, electronic board up on there that sort of ticker tape. Let me tell you what Jesus, uh, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Number one, he's, he's attested uh, and, and accredited him. Number two, he's been sacrificed to pay for the sin of all those who will come to him in faith and <coughs> repentance. He has raised him. And people will look at that and go, I never knew that. Now, listen, it's not totally our fault people don't know that. But if in ten years people in speak that still don't know that, whose fault is it? mine is yours and all of you. We need to get the news out of what has been done and then show people how they're involved in it. Initiative that's going to take a lot of crafting, a lot of work. That's an initiative that we will or the enemy of our soul will want to pull us off and we'll come up with loads of other worthy things to be giving our times to. We'll come up with all kinds of reasons why it's not our responsibility. He's put us in spirit. I can't say it more plainly than that. Nobody else is going to get up and do it. The cavalry ain't coming. We are the ones who've got to get the news out. So in 10 years, 20 years, if people in speak know what God did, we're not responsible for how they respond to it. As you see, Peter pleads with them, and we'll plead with people, but we can at least tell them what God did. That's what we need. First, I need to finish up. Let's go on to point number four, the movement. The movement. This is how the movement develops. The movement of Pentecost. Verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off in speak, for all whom the Lord, our God, will call. With many other words he warned them. And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accept this message were baptised. And about 3,000 were added to their number <coughs> that day. Change happens. They were part of the story. They were cut to the heart. That idea of cut to the heart is, 
they had to face the truth about who Jesus was, they saw the gravity of their situation, and they had to admit they were wrong. Deep inside, they were wrong about what they'd been building their life on and about how they responded to Jesus. It was personal and they were in trouble, they were cut to the heart. And I wonder how often you've had that experience where you've opened God's word and been presented with who Christ is, and you're like, oh, yes, this is reality, and I'm having a reality check here. That's the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit does that in somebody. In fact, it's, well, look, what happened? Well, they realised they were part of the story. They admitted that although they hadn't physically crucified Jesus, they were part of the people group that had caused his death. And had they had their influence and their say that day, they would have said exactly the same, crucify. Can I tell you you'd have done the same? I know we talk about being a really accepting society, but we are, in my opinion, the most judgmental and critical society the world has ever known. We spend our whole lives on our phones going, like, <clears throat> dislike, approve, unapproved, all out of that dislike. Now, Jesus had popped up on our little mobile phone on Instagram or Facebook for us to like or dislike. Left our own devices, what would we press? Getting in our faces. Here they were, they saw their part in all this, they were cut to the heart. But isn't this wonderful? And this is what the Spirit of God does. They cry for help. What shall we do? And even the fact that they can ask that says something about who God is and what he's like. Because if they were totally, if they were as bad as they were realising they were as bad, they would know there was no hope. But for a God of love who can intervene in a great personal cost, come in and perform a rescue. You see that? Even the fact that we get the ability to ask for help says something about the God who's made this universe. There is a hope because he is the one. If he's like all the other gods and all the other religions, no hope. But he's Jesus Christ, the Lord, and there is hope. What do they do? Well, they're encouraged by Peter, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. Which basically means, receive him on his terms. Renounce your self-rule, renounce your rebellion, and run to him with total allegiance, casting every last part of your life onto him. And as you do that, you receive spiritual blessing, abundance, new life in him, and all that he has won. Receive him on his terms. You don't get to go up to Jesus and negotiate with him and say, yeah, listen, I'm in a bit of a jam, I want this much help and only this much help. No, you take him as he is. Take him on his terms, and then you join the movement. Verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. What was their number doing? Well, all 12 of them were standing up and telling about Jesus. So 3,000 got on the, on the platform that day. <coughs> you know, I was, I was pushed quite hard last week, and you were very patient with me. You said that this was helpful to you as well, so thank you. <coughs> last week I said that if you call yourself a Christian, you are either a missionary or an imposter. If you call yourself a Christian, you're either a missionary or an imposter. Now that brings totally true. But I think what we're seeing here today is I want to just change the sentence a little bit. And I think this says here, you're either a missionary or a mission field. You're a missionary or a mission field. 
Now, I don't know exactly where all of you are at spiritually, but the vast majority of people in this room have made a profession of faith for Jesus Christ. means that you're a missionary. That's what your job is. In the limited amount of time um, that you've got left. To the delight of Kaylee and a few others, she loves to tell me how quickly I'm aging. Oh, she's out there on the sale kind of acting. Loves is the first thing she says to me. She's telling me how fast I'm aging. And the reality is, I'm aging pretty fast. I reckon I've maybe, if she dicky to the Oh, bless you. <laughs> That's good for you. You're back on my Christmas card list, okay? Uh, I reckon I've maybe got 30 years left in me unless I get hit by a bus tomorrow. What am I supposed to do with me 30 years? I don't think I'm going to make it to the dizzy heights of Vi, but if I do, when I get to the dizzy heights of Vi, uh, somebody needs to come alongside me and say, you've reached the dizzy heights of Vi, but you're still supposed to be a missionary. Some of you have got your whole world ahead of you. As best you know, horrible teenagers. It will go like that. Be a missionary. Be part of the movement. As much fun as there are for other things to do, that's what you're supposed to use your life for. Join the movement. Because this is where the Spirit got going and created a whole new people. This is why the early church grew. This is why we are in speak, and that is the call on your life. And I don't mind saying that. And I can argue it theologically from here. So if you have a problem with that, come and see me afterwards, and I'll knock you out of the Bible. This is what the Lord wants us to give the best of ourselves with. He wants us to give the best of ourselves to this. So you can't have other things. But for me, and I can only speak personally, the best of myself very quickly wants to go to the projects that I'm busying myself with, or the hobbies that make me feel good about myself, or the health which so often seems under threat, or the money that just seems to give me stuff that makes me short-term feel good about myself. So the best of myself, the best. I had, to, I had a lovely day out yesterday with my daughter, we were on a bike, and my problem was, was I woke up this morning, not thinking about the Lord, I was thinking about pedalling a bike. In the grand scheme of eternity, I mean, it, well, okay, in the, the simplicity of this room, that might sound pretty pathetic, but in the, against the backdrop of the grand scheme of eternity, that is monumentally foolish. The best of myself should not be given to pedalling a bike. The best of myself what the Lord wants us to give the best of ourselves to and this is why we remember him which we're going to do in just a second when we saw we're going to remember his sacrifice we're going to remember what he's done for us we're going to remember until he comes and as we remember until he comes we speak out as his missions that started way back then it's carrying on now and we all get the call to be a part of it I'm going to sing Jesus Christ like a big, funny sacrifice. When the introduction's played, I stand to sing. <laughs>